You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Congratulations on being here at 8 o'clock uh, for our new meeting time. There's a lot of prayer went into this uh, new meeting time. Just kidding. This is a one-off. Thanks for being here. Uh, we are delighted uh, to see you guys. Uh, we are seven days out from Christmas, which means that you have seven days left to watch Christmas movies. Um, only seven days. Nobody likes person who watches Christmas movies after Christmas. <laughs> uh, sorry to offend. Um, I'll give you a, a couple of my favorites. Uh, the How the Grinch Stole Christmas, classic movie that I grew up with. I don't know if you guys grew up with the original, but the cartoon is hard to beat. Uh, a Christmas Carol, there's like a million versions of A Christmas Carol out there. My favorite, the one with Jim Carrey, uh, the animated version, where it, it looks like a caricature of Jim Carrey, because that's what it is, uh, Mr., as Mr. Scrooge. But my favorite of all time, and this is going to out me as someone who was born old, uh, is It's a Wonderful Life, 1946. Yes, thank you. Uh, if you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, it's all about a man named George Bailey, the hometown hero of Bedford Falls. George is a small-town guy, but he wants to get out and he wants to see the world. But when his father dies, he submits himself to staying in Bedford Falls to run the family business. And it just so happens that uh, that business, the Bailey Building and Loan, is, uh, it helps working-class people get a, a decent loan. And it's the only thing keeping the town afloat uh, and away from the grubby hands of Mr. Potter a scheming developer who wants to swallow up the whole town for himself and remake it in his own twisted image. Now, I won't spoil anything about the movie if you haven't seen it, but there's a reason George Bailey has a place in the hearts of so many Americans, including me. He made sacrifices for others. He gave up his big dreams of travel and success in order to serve and essentially save his hometown. And there's a humility there that I think we're drawn to innately. It's a selfless thing. It's heroic. And it's something that we see in our text today demonstrated supremely by our Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at how Christ was conceived in the womb of a virgin miraculously. And we looked at it from Luke chapter 1, which is a narrative uh, given from the perspective of Mary and Joseph. And today we're going to look at that same reality, uh, Jesus becoming a man, uh, except from God's own vantage point. Uh, our text is Philippians chapter 2, which is written by Paul, and it pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and shows the depths of humility that it took for Jesus to take on flesh and become a man. So our main idea this morning is this, Jesus came in humility. And my outline has three points. Number one, Jesus emptied himself. Number two, his humility became his glory. And number three, his followers should be humble 
like him. And as you see, we're going to start right in the middle of the text because this is where we get a clear picture of Jesus, and then we'll circle around and see what this means for ourselves. So point number one, Jesus emptied himself. Starting in verse six, though he was in the form of God. Now let's just stop right there and ask, what does that mean, to be in the form of God? Well, the rest of scripture is helpful in filling in that picture. We know from John chapter one, that in the beginning, Jesus was with God and he was God. So long before anything was created, long before there were any stars or planets, or galaxies, Jesus was with the Father and the Holy Spirit, equal in power and might and wisdom and in perfect fellowship. But then God, out of his own goodness, decides to create. And he says, all things were made through him, that is, through Jesus. And so Jesus is not just the eternal Son of God, he is the creator. He upholds the universe by his own power, He holds it together. And before he took on flesh, he was in the form of God. That is, outside his creation and without a physical body. But that changes when something called the incarnation happens. And that word incarnation is just uh, the, the theological word for becoming flesh. God becoming flesh. We see that in verse 6. Those, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in steps Jesus to become a part of his own created world. And the big blaring question here for all of us ought to be why? Why would God, who lives in perfect joy and bliss and happiness, why would he come down to earth and subject himself to the sufferings and trials and burdens of this world? How does that make any sense? Well, it doesn't make sense unless we understand his love for us and our desperate condition. This morning in the reading, uh, we heard about the darkness that has taken our world ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin, and we were reminded that our world was held captive by the evil one, and that we'd been cut off from our creator, the one who made us to know him and love him and experience his fellowship. We lost fellowship with him, and we couldn't be in his presence anymore because he's holy, and we had become unholy. And without being reconciled to him, that is made right with God, we were completely without hope and destined for judgment. The good news of Christmas this morning is that sin did not get the final word. And in fact, it didn't even catch God off guard. Because although he is holy and just, his heart beats with compassion for his wayward children. And he still loves us. He's committed to finding a way to reconcile us to himself, not because we deserve it, but because he's just that good. So the book of Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's not possible. So there had to be a punishment, a payment for all the wrongs committed against God. They couldn't just be swept under the rug and ignored. 
And so, in His amazing mercy, 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus, His own Son, into our world to take on flesh, to become the one person in the universe who could be a perfect and fitting sacrifice for our sins. And notice, this plan was not involuntary for Jesus. It wasn't forced on Him at all. He was actively committed to it. Verse 6, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's active, willing language from Jesus. He chose to submit to the Father's will. Now, in America, we really cherish our freedoms and our rights, don't we? I, I mean, there's, if there's one thing we agree on, and that's increasingly little as our country has become more uh, polarized, the one thing we agree on is that we do have rights. We may not agree on what those rights are, but we know we have them, and we bleed for those rights. We, we, we fight for them, and uh, praise God, you know, I am grateful for, for rights. I it's something that I think a, a lot of us here uh, during the week uh, seek to defend, and that's a good thing. It protects us from abuse and tyranny. But notice in this text, rights are not at the very top of Jesus' concern, at least for himself. When his creation goes off the rails and his creatures are stuck in sin, his response is not to ask, okay, well, what are, what are my rights here? What what can, I, what can I do to maximize my own rights? No, he looks to the plight of his children. He looks to the interests of others. And even though he had every right to stay with his father, he emptied himself. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that by his poverty you might become rich. So I just want to ask, have you received the riches that Christ came to offer you? Have you opened up the true Christmas gift for yourself? You know, we often say that Jesus is the reason for the season, uh, which is true, but sometimes it helps to say the reason out loud. And that reason is that God emptied himself for us. He became a human being in order to save us from our sins. He became poor that we might become rich. And in Christmas, God is the giver, but he's also the gift. The gift that keeps on giving for all eternity. So trust him this morning. And that brings us to our second point. His humility became his glory. It's fair to say that when Jesus went to the cross as an adult, it looked pretty humble. I think everyone could agree on that. But it didn't look glorious. People didn't understand. They were thinking, why is he dying on a cross? How is that saving anyone? That looks weak. It makes no sense. And even the disciples were confused. Maybe we got it wrong. Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. But as they would later find out, that cross, that place of utter humility and debasement, quickly became a place of his glory. By emptying himself, by going to the lowest point imaginable for the Son of God, 
a Roman cross. He exhausted in himself the wrath of God, making peace between God and man. No one expected this. None could have fathomed that the death of God's Son would unlock the glories of salvation, even for those who killed him, let alone for you and me. And yet that's exactly what happened. On the cross, he swallowed up death forever, resulting in his praise and honor and glory. Humility becomes glory. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His act of humility became his glory. Now, the interesting thing here is that although Jesus is totally unique in his saving power, Paul, in this passage, points to his sacrifice as an example for us to follow, which brings us to point three. His followers should be humble like him. So let's jump to first, verse one and read that first section. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So here we see that Jesus is not just our Savior, although he is that, chiefly. He is also our example for life. Paul is saying, see what Christ did on the cross? Now go and do that for each other, for other people. This is a call to unity, love, and humility, counting others more significant than ourselves. Now, that pattern we just talked about with Christ, where his humility became his glory, uh, that's actually something that Jesus had taught his disciples personally before he died. In uh, Mark chapter 10, I just want to briefly read a couple of verses here because I think it illustrates what Paul is getting at. Uh, this is a pretty ridiculous scene where the disciples are debating with each other, which among them is the greatest. You remember that? And I always wonder, like, what did that conversation sound like? Like, hey, man, I'm the greatest. Oh, I'm the greatest. Like, like middle school. It's, it's pure pride. And, and remember how Jesus responded. Chapter 10. Whoever would be great among you must become your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This means that there is a greatness that comes upon you when you empty yourself for somebody else. You have to go low in order to go high. And this is how we find ourselves, right, to use a, a modern phrase, not by exalting ourselves and lifting ourselves up, but by laying our lives down for others. It's totally counterintuitive, and yet it's what Jesus said 
In Matthew 23, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Have you ever noticed that pride diminishes a person? It always diminishes a person. And not just the overt, like bombastic kind of pride that is sort of overt, you know, braggadocio, but the subtle pride, the kind of pride that name drops unnecessarily and wants you to know who they are and what connections they have and where they went to school or how much they know on a given topic, even though it doesn't seem to be relevant to the conversation. The irrelevant knowledge keeps finding a way in. Have you noticed that that sort of pride actually does the opposite of what the person wants? They wanted you to think highly of them, but now they just kind of look small, diminished, and even desperate. Maybe that's been you. It's certainly been me. Pride is the food of a small soul. And that's hard to say because pride, in some measure, is true of all of us. It's the food of a small soul. But in the gospel, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father. Come and join me. Empty yourself, and you'll find the life and rest that you're looking for. Now that is a counter-cultural message in a place like D.C., right? A city where power and prestige seem to be everything, where so often it seems like the goal is to appear humble without actually being humble. Isn't that how this town works? Like, I want the benefits of looking humble without actually the self-emptying part. Well, based on this text, Jesus came to destroy that way of thinking. And this is where knowing him personally makes all the difference in the world. Because what he shows us on the cross is that emptying ourselves is actually the gateway to a life of joy and freedom. It was Jesus who said, it is better to give, better to give than to receive. So when we empty ourselves, demonstrating the gospel, we get to participate in his joy. And humility becomes a feast for our souls. This is what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's the kind of joy that doesn't even think about trying to look good because you found something so much better. You found that when you become nothing, you get everything. When you lose your life for his sake, you actually find your life. It's counterintuitive, it's supernatural, and it's absolute gain. And so I wonder if you've experienced that joy of humility. Maybe it's been a while. So what would it look like heading into 2023 to empty yourself in a new way for others? I can certainly tell you there are people in this room who know that joy and thrive on it all the time. People who serve regularly through good neighbor, people who help set up this room and tear it down, who man the tables, people who disciple interns who are just here for one semester, don't have anything to offer you, but whose lives could be changed by having a Christian mentor. There are literally countless ways that we can empty ourselves and participate in the joy of Christ, which never runs out. And if that kind of mindset feels foreign to you or just feels beyond reach, let's look at verse 5. It says, have this mind, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul doesn't say it can be yours if you try harder. It, it is yours. It belongs to you already because it's part of your inheritance if you've trusted in Jesus and you have his spirit living inside of you. As we heard last week from Wesley, God does the impossible. So don't give up on this. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's a promise from Jesus that you can bank on. Well, I just want to close with this observation. Ever since the serpent lied to Adam and Eve in the garden, saying, eat this and you'll be just like God, that's been the temptation. That's been the Achilles heel of the human race, that we've been grasping for equality with God. Jesus shows us the better way. And ironically, he's the one person in the universe who actually could claim equality with God because he is God. And yet he chooses to lay down his rights to pursue the good of another. How many of our disputes with each other could be solved if we just stopped grasping for our rights, what we think we're due? How many wars would never start? How many lawsuits would never be filed? How many hurtful words would never leave our mouths or even originate in our hearts if we simply looked not only to our own interests, but the interests of others? This is the calling of every Christian. Remember what Jesus says, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. He didn't just come to save us. He came to show us how to live, emptying ourselves for others, learning his humble joy. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.